the book of Ephesians chapter 4, the fourth chapter of Ephesians. I'm going to try to preach a fast message tonight. I don't know how it's going to go, but I'm going to try to preach fast tonight, maybe faster than usual. But if you look at Ephesians chapter 4, for the past few weeks we've been studying a very practical part of this fourth chapter where Paul tells these Ephesian Christians that since a change has been wrought in their lives through the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, that now these people are to begin to live and to act out this change that's been made. And I can imagine that living in Ephesus must have been a a, a difficult time for those Christians there. Trying to live a Christian life in such a wicked place must have been very hard and probably uh, very much harder than what we have to live as a Christian life here. Now, sometimes we think that living in the area that we're in, it's very difficult for us to, to live out our faith and to express our faith here. But it's really, when you think about what the Ephesian Christians had to go through, uh, they, they had a lot more challenges to live a Christian life than we do. Now, they were in the midst of a society where there was no morality, where they had no help from other Christians, where they didn't have much of the Word of God, in fact, that they could read. They had no materials to use. Not at all like we have here. You know, in our our area, at least, there's a little bit of morality left. Just a smidgen of morality. There's a little bit of that left. And uh, we do have encouragement from other Christians that are around. We do have good books to read. We have commentaries to read. We have the Word of God that's uh, readily available to us. But these Ephesian Christians had none of that. In fact, the only thing that they had to rely on was God. And he's all you need. And we notice here that as Paul talks to the Ephesian Christians, he doesn't lend them any kind of an excuse for the difficulties of living their Christian life. He just simply says to them that you need to put off those old things, put them behind you. Now, if they didn't have an excuse for the way that they live, we certainly don't have an excuse today. I mean, if we, uh, we are expected to, to live out the faith that God has given us and... and uh, Even if there is no outside human help for us, we can still depend on God. But as we come to verse number 30 here, our our text verse for tonight, Paul gives us the impetus that's needed for righteous and holy living. There's one chief reason, above all reasons, to act and to do righteously, and Paul gives it to us right here in verse number 30. Now, we're going to talk about this tonight. This evening, we're going to to discuss some things about the Holy Spirit. And I want to go back to the beginning of the section that we've been studying that starts with with verse number 25. And if you'll stand with me, please, we're going to begin reading there tonight. And you remember that the verses preceding verse number 25, Paul talked about the old man putting off the old man and how that the new man is created after God in righteousness and true holiness. And then he goes into this next section, beginning with verse number 25, where he gives us some practical living advice, mentioning some very specific sins. So verse number 25, he says, Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be ye angry and sin not, let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that need it. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is to the good, uh, which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. Now, here's our text verse, verse number 30. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, 
whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for uh, the good advice that Paul gives us here, telling us how to live our lives and how to be holy and righteous before you. And Lord, may we do exactly as Paul enjoins us to do here, and may we live a life that we don't grieve the Holy Spirit by what we do. Lord, may we always honor and glorify you in everything. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Tonight, my subject is Sign, Sealed, Delivered, I'm Yours. And you'll pardon me tonight as I preach this message because these are some things that really get me worked up sometimes. And uh, some things I'm going to be mentioning tonight upset me a little bit at times when they're not taught and preached correctly. And so I might get a little bit excited in this sermon. But I want to talk to you on this subject, Sign, Sealed, Delivered, I'm Yours. And this is one of the most powerful verses that we have in the New Testament, I believe. If we only had one verse to tell us about our eternal security in Christ, this would be a verse that would be enough to show us all that we need to know about the practical side of our Christian experience in our Christian life. Now, as we think about uh, this particular aspect of salvation, there's something that we need to get first and foremost into our minds. And that is, just like all the other aspects of salvation, the end of our sanctification, the whole uh, uh, purpose of sanctification, which Paul is dealing with in this section of Scriptures, is not us. The, The final terminus of this. The terminus of purpose is not in us, it's not in our holiness, and it's not our happiness. Now, certainly we do understand that dethroning sin in our lives, uh, that's the righteous thing to do, and that's the good thing to do. Uh, We need to be holy people, and these things avail for our sanctification. And absolutely, this is the very best way for us to live, is to get rid of our sin. But Paul doesn't bring his reasoning down and end it all in those terms, or the terms that it's all about us. He doesn't end by saying it's all about you. He doesn't end by saying that if you do this, uh, you'll be a a good, happy Christian. No, he says, if you don't do this, you'll grieve the Holy Spirit. And that's what the whole teaching of sanctification is about. It's just like all the other aspects of salvation. The final purpose of this is not for us. It's for God. Now, folks, I I wish that our Baptist people would learn this and and Baptist people would begin to turn around in their views of salvation because this whole matter of salvation was not intended to to, uh, be something that would give man worth. It wasn't to bring man to the place where he's the crowning achievement of of the work of Jesus Christ. Salvation is all about God and bringing us to a place where we recognize who he is and what we're doing here, everything we do is for one chief purpose and that's to glorify God. Now, when our Baptist people began to get angry about the preaching of election and predestination, when they became hostile towards any thought that God might be able to do what he pleases because he's a sovereign God, and when our people began to interject into their ideas of of who God is about fairness and equity based upon God's obligation uh, to save man, that's when they lost the purpose of what God has saved us for. Now, somehow they think that they're doing man a favor by declaring that the sacrifice of Christ was so universal that it secures absolutely nothing for anyone. Man becomes nameless and faceless under that system. 
And what we learn here, though, is that God has been so specific and so particular in his redemption that God has determined to save people. And he's taken those people and he's made them divine objects of mercy and grace. And he tells us that these people are gifts to his son. He knows every one of them by name. He knows, he knows who he chose and he wrote their names in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. And when you look at the Word of God, you can see that the fingerprints of a sovereign God are all over the Scriptures. How could you not see this? I mean, it's even plain as we come to a Scripture like Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, when Paul says, "...and grieve not the Holy Spirit of God." And he brings it all down to God. It all comes back to Him. Why should we not sin? Because of Him and not because of us. Well, that's the introduction to the sermon tonight. This is a marvelous subject. You know, many Baptists uh, pick up the Bible and they stumble around the Scriptures and they never see and they're always pretending that they know what this is talking about. But I want to tell you something. If you miss the covenant of redemption from the foundation of the world, you have no clue how these Scriptures go together. Now, let's look at some things here tonight uh, uh, concerning verse number 30 and grieving the Holy Spirit. First of all, I want to talk to you about the sorrow of the Spirit, the sorrow of the Spirit. And this is really an amazing thing. If you think for just a moment what this suggests, you'll find that this is a mind-boggling concept. Because here we have the sovereign God, the creator of this entire universe, uh, a, a God that the Scripture says is supremely happy in himself, And I might add to that that we're wrong if we try to teach people that God created man so that he could increase his happiness. That's not why God created man. God is an infinite being, and he has all of his faculties in infinite measure. And so God could never be anything less than he ever was, and God could never be anything more than he ever was. God could never be any happier than he ever was. He's supremely happy. And he said himself, I am the Lord, I change not. He's an immutable God, and so God never gains and he never loses anything. And yet, as Paul writes this scripture, he reveals something to us that seems to be just totally impossible. How could this be? God who is independent of us, God who is unaffected by us, the Bible says that he can be grieved. And that tells us that God can feel sorrow. Now, I would have to tell you this evening that this is one truth of the Word of God that I don't understand. It belongs to the secret things of God, how that God could be grieved or experience sorrow. This is one of the things I think the Bible tells us is past finding out. It's just beyond our understanding. But God has given us a way to understand a little bit about it. He's given us some words of explanation, but there's no way that we can delve into this in any way, shape, or form and be completely adequate, adequate in explanation as to why God can do this. How can God be grieved? Well, I want to begin this section of the message tonight by, by saying that God, the Holy Spirit, has willingly subjected himself to grief. He can't be compelled to grieve. I mean, when you think about it, God could dispense with grief with just a nod. But there's only really one way that I think that we can understand this, and we have to come to an understanding somewhat in the way that God works in salvation itself. Because God certainly was not compelled to give himself for sin. God didn't have to do that. Uh, uh, Jesus, even when he was in his earthly body, he wasn't forced to, to go to the cross. But it was Jesus who set up the date. He set up the time. And not until he was ready to go could those people ever have taken him to the cross. So God doesn't, can't be compelled to do anything. 
Grace and mercy and love, those are attributes of God, and those things are the motivators for God's actions. Those are eternal attributes. That's the very essence of God. So that the scriptures very aptly put it this way, as God says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So whatever God does, he always does for reasons that are found within himself. Nothing outside could ever force God to do anything. And so what God has done here, he has willingly allowed himself to be grieved. And see, so he has put himself into a relationship with man that actually makes it possible. God stoops down to our level and he accepts the pain of our ingratitude. Now, this is why I gave you the introduction that I did to the sermon, because when we sin against God, that's a terrible thing. And when we've broken God's law, it's awful in its effects that it has upon us. But what is most damaging of all, the worst part of it, is that we have offended God's mercy and his grace, and thereby God is grieved. When we don't obey him, when we don't live as he says to live, when we don't pay attention to what he says, then we grieve God. And that's the worst thing of all. We have offended his mercy and his grace. Now, as I speak about this, the huge problem in sanctification, or the way that sanctification is taught, is, uh, is really something that we need to look at. There's a problem in the way that sanctification is taught. And particularly notable is what Baptists have done with sanctification. Because you look at all the rules that are imposed... And you look at people that are checking out all the, the different things that folks do. And, and you see somebody running around measuring haircuts and measuring how far a dress is above somebody's knee. You look at all the documents that, that have to be enforced and all the things and rules that have to be kept. And you find out that sanctification in most of our churches is being produced like a mechanical thing. It's something that makes me turn out like a Christian college clone. And what's completely missed in this is that that is never, it is never the way that the Bible speaks of sanctification. Sanctification is always presented to us as a response of God's love towards us. And so our misconduct and our, our offenses against God offend his holiness first. And they don't offend our holiness, they offend God's holiness first of all. Now you check out the system of salvation where, where man is operative and you'll also find out that the sanctification's being taught wrongly because that makes man the chief end of sanctification as well. Now, folks, we have a holy God and we have a holy response to him because of our deep affection and our love and because of our gratitude for salvation and our desire to glorify God. And that is what makes us not want to produce grief in the one who saved us. And that never would have been possible if God had not willingly subjected himself to the relationship that could make that happen. Now, having said that, does that mean that everything goes now? We, we never have to worry about keeping a standard. Now, Pastor Smith has just told everybody that we can act and dress like the world and it makes no difference at all. Well, I'll tell you something. If that's what you think, then you're messed up as much as the fundamental Baptists are in this. My whole point is, is that we will be holy for all of the right reasons. Because as the Holy Spirit subjects himself to be grieved and willingly subjects himself to be grieved by what we do, we also willingly subject ourselves to try to prevent whatever it is that makes the Holy Spirit grieve. Now, sanctification is produced not because I can give you a specific length for your hair or for your dresses. And it's not whether, or not, it's not, uh, whether a, a woman wears pants or not. 
It's not whether you can purchase a soul-winning skirt that goes all the way down to your ankles. That's not what it's all about. It's about a heart that yields itself to whatever grieves the Holy Spirit and gets rid of that thing. So he willingly subjected himself to grief. Now, the second thing I want to show you about that is that we willingly contribute to his grief. Now, I've already covered these dress issues, and you know, there's some of our churches who live and die by dress issues. For them, doctrine number one is you help God save you, so now you go out and tell everybody how you did that. And then doctrine number two is go out and put on sackcloth and ashes. And you know what else? They don't have doctrine three, four, and five because that's the only thing that they know. So I don't need to talk to you about how that we dress wrongly and how that contributes to God's grief. I mean, Paul effectively tells us about different sins in verses 25 through 29. Those things grieve the spirit. Next week, we're going to look at verse number 31, and we'll find some more things that grieve his spirit. But don't you think that there might be some other things that also contribute to his grief? While the fundamental Baptists are hunkered down on this issue of of the dress and all those kinds of things, don't you think that preaching that the blood of Christ is of no effect and it's wasted unless it's joined by man and man makes up his value, don't you think that grieves the Spirit of God? And don't you think it grieves the Spirit of God to have a college professor tell your young people that salvation is not all about God? And I could move on and I could talk to you about uh, this as well. Last year I attended the GARBC convention in, in, um, in Reno, the General Association of Regular Baptists. Doesn't it grieve the spirit, you think, when there are people that call themselves Baptists who have baptism as a part of their name and yet they will accept the immersion from different groups that don't preach biblical truths? Don't you think it grieves the Holy Spirit of God when Baptist churches today are accepting the baptism from charismatics and from people who preach that salvation can be lost or you can fall from grace? Don't you think that grieves the Holy Spirit? And don't you think that the Holy Spirit is grieved when the Bible says that Christ loved the church and gave himself for it and let you, let you can go all over this city today and you can find churches that will not preach from the Bible itself? And, and churches that won't preach about hell and don't preach about sin because those things are unpopular? Churches today have defanged the devil. Do you think that doesn't grieve the Holy Spirit? There's a lot of things to grieve the Spirit. Now, some of you might think by the way that I preach and the things that I say that I think that we're the only ones who are right. I'm not going to say that. I'll say I think the Bible is the only thing that's right. And as long as we preach the Bible, then we're going to be right. No, I was talking to one of the brethren the other day, and he said, I'm sure glad that Berean Baptist Church is not in the south where there are lots of churches because we need the church right where we are. And I think that's true. You know, as much as I would love to have the company and fellowship of good Baptist churches around, we're right where we need to be. Somebody better still stand on the Bible, and somebody still better be preaching what historical Baptists preach because not many are doing it anymore. Now, let me move on here, because Paul teaches the sorrow of the Spirit. He says, grieve not the Holy Spirit, but then he also teaches the sealing of the Spirit. Now, let me move on quickly here, because this is a blessed thought for us to consider. We are sealed by the Spirit. Now, what that means is that God has put his mark upon us. 
Now, that's not like God sticking us into a mason jar and vacuum packing us and and sealing us up. That's not what it's talking about. It's a different type of sealing. And so what we have here is a sealing that's been placed by the sovereign. It's placed by the sovereign God. And this is a seal that's placed upon us like an, an official seal is put on a document. Back in the Bible times, they would take wax and they would melt it onto a document and they would press an image or a stamp into that, an official image or stamp. And what that meant was that this is sealed under the authority of the king. No one can dispute that this belongs to the king. Well, of course, the seal that we have is not a wax seal. We don't have an embossed insignia upon us and we don't have a paper seal or anything like that. We have the seal of the Spirit, which means that the Holy Spirit himself is this seal. And this is a seal of ownership. God puts a seal on us and he says, this person belongs to me. And when God gives you that Holy Spirit, what that means is he's giving you the confirmation of what's taken place in your heart. It's the confirmation of what takes place in your heart. And God puts the stamp of approval on that and says, this is one of my children. Now, you may remember in an article that I quoted from the West Coast Baptist College a few weeks ago that the author disputed that we could ever know that we're one of God's elect. He said that we can have no assurance of our salvation. But let me tell you something, right here is assurance. How do I know that I'm one of God's elect? Well, I only know it one way. I'm saved. And the Holy Spirit lives in my heart. And God gave me that Holy Spirit to show me that I'm chosen. And he certainly doesn't give the Holy Spirit to anyone else. So this seal is placed upon us by the sovereign God. And the seal is the Holy Spirit. But further, we also know about this, that it's the pledge of the Savior. Now, I want you to look uh, back at chapter 1 in Ephesians for just a moment. Look at verse 11. Ephesians chapter 1, verse number 11, because Paul writes about this pledge of the Savior. And he says in verse 11, "...and whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory, who first trusted in Christ, in whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the God gospel of your salvation, and whom also after that you believed you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance unto the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. Now, I hope that you remember what we talked about when we studied this, but these verses tell us that the Holy Spirit is a pledge that we will receive our final redemption. You'll notice the word earnest there. And the word earnest means the same thing as a security deposit. It's like when you go and you put a security deposit down on a piece of property. And that's your pledge that you are going to complete that that purchase. And that's exactly what God has done for us with the Holy Spirit. He, He purchases the whole man. He purchases, he purchases the, the body, soul, and the spirit. Now, you understand that when you get saved in your innermost being, your soul and your spirit have been purchased by God, but your body hasn't yet been redeemed. You still live in a sinful body and sinful flesh. And so God has promised that not only is he going to purchase your soul and your spirit, but he also says that I bought your body as well. Now, of course, your body hasn't yet been changed. It hasn't yet been glorified. But God says, I've purchased that, and it's going to become his. Uh, Full ownership is there as soon as the resurrection comes. So God has given you the Holy Spirit to live in your body as a promise that he intends to redeem the body. Now, I don't know about you, but I think that's good news. 
I think it's good news to know that God's going to redeem the body because I happen to like my body. If you jump me after church and try to harm my body, I'll show you just how much I really do like my body. But God says uh, he's created this and he's going to, to glorify it and he will reunite it with your spirit in heaven. Now, there's, of course, two ways, one of two ways that the body will be glorified. That is, if you die before Jesus comes back again, then your body will remain in the grave until the second coming. And when Christ comes again, he'll come in the air with a shout and the voice of the archangel. The trump of God will sound, and the bodies of those who have died in Christ will rise, and those bodies will be glorified. But if you're alive when Jesus comes back, the first thing that you'll do, you'll hear the trumpet, you'll see the bodies go up, and then in a split second, your body will be transformed to be like his body. It will be a glorified body. And that's when uh, God and we receive the full redemption of our bodies. Now, here's the thing, folks. The Holy Spirit has been given to you as a pledge that that very thing will take place. God says, I want you to know this. You can be absolutely sure of it. My Holy Spirit is given to you as a witness that this will happen. Your body will be purchased. Now, I, don't, I can't go for any of this nonsense that says that we don't know whether we are the elect of God. They may not know it at West Coast, but I sure do know it. I know that I'm the elect of God. Now, here's the third part of this, the lesson tonight, and that is the security of the Spirit. Now, Paul teaches the sorrow of the Spirit and the sealing of the Spirit, but he also teaches the security of the Spirit. And, of course, I've already covered that in part by talking about the seal because the seal that we have is a seal of security. And when you have the Holy Spirit living in your heart, that's what gives you assurance. But security is more than just assurance because assurance is an abstract thing. Assurance is something that takes place in your mind. That's a thought process. Well, to have that assurance, you've got to have something concrete that backs it up. You've got to have something that supports that so you know that it's real. Well, the concrete, absolute proof of our assurance and the reason why we can have assurance is the work of the Heavenly Father in eternity past. This work, this security is grounded in what God the Father did. Now, the amazing thing about our fickle fundamental friends is that they have destroyed with their doctrine the very foundation of why that we know that we're saved. The foundation of this is the plan and purpose of God before the world ever began. I want you to understand something, folks. God did not create this world as an experiment to see what man would do. And whenever you take salvation out of God's hands and you put it into man's hands and you say that the ultimate determiner of your salvation is what man decides then what you've done is make planet Earth an experiment station. God's not sure what's going to happen in this, uh, in this experiment. He may send Christ into the world, and nobody may believe, because God doesn't know who's going to be saved. Christ may come into the world, and some people get saved, and God's going to stand back and say, well, I wonder how that happened. Let me write down the data here. I need to figure this thing out. Let me see here now. When X happens and Y happens like this, then Z is the result. And so the probabilities are that there could be very many more people that are saved in the same way. Not on your life. God doesn't think like that. God's not experimenting and waiting to find out what we're going to do. God's already planned it all. I mean, he has a world and created a world with full intention that he would bring glory to himself. And whatever God does, it will always bring him glory. And whether you like it or not, even the idea of hell glorifies Christ 
You know why I say that? Because hell is a testament to the justice and the righteousness of God. If there were no hell, then God would not be glorified because then his law would only be suggestive for us and not authoritative. So hell even glorifies God. He wouldn't have created if it didn't. Now, there are two aspects that I want to show you about the Spirit's security. The first one is, we persevere by the Spirit. Now, I want to reference again this West Coast article because the writer of this article says that those of us who believe in the doctrines of grace can never have assurance that our faith is true. And he writes it in quotations, sovereign grace faith. And he does that, of course, to mock what we believe. But he says this, and I quote it for you tonight. He says, perhaps God has given him a false faith because he's not really one of the elect. Then he goes on to say that we teach, and I'm quoting from again, that one must persevere with his faith and good works, and that salvation is never assured. Let me go on with another quote. The Bible does not teach the saints persevering in order to keep salvation, but there are several verses that mention the fact that saints have been preserved. We'll get to that one in just a minute. Perseverance is one thing. Preservation is another. Listen to this. The saints do not persevere. They're preserved. Now, first, let me, let me say about that, this statement that I believe that that is a deliberate misrepresentation. I cannot believe that a professor in a Baptist college would write something like that without going to check the meaning and the explanation of perseverance according to the doctrines of grace and according to the historic Baptist confessions of faith. I can't believe that he would write the article without checking the facts. But you know why I don't think that he did? Because he's reinterpreted the facts in order to deliberately give us a false impression. Now, if he's ignorant of the facts, then I apologize for that statement. But I'll tell you this, I think he's disingenuous in any way that he goes. Because he claims enough authority to write on the subject when he doesn't know the subject. Or, without, uh, or he deliberately changes, uh, changes the facts that are given here. Either way, the man's a dead duck when he writes this. But let me read to you a statement by a real theologian. This was written by T.P. Simmons in his book, A Systematic Study of Bible Doctrine. And T.P. Simmons, folks, was an historical Baptist. And he writes on this subject, The Perseverance and Preservation of the Saints. And he says, Some have erred in presenting the preservation, safety, security of the saved, as if it were independent of perseverance. Such a presentation tends towards antinomianism. Now, you may not understand what that means. That, that simply means that Christians are free from the law, and so therefore they have no moral standard that they have to live by. It also tends to represent salvation as physical or mechanical rather than moral and spiritual accomplishment. It furnishes the Arminian with ammunition. It teaches only a half-truth. It is not calculated to make saints as considerate as they ought to be in their walk. Inspired writers avoided this extreme and its dire results by combining both the human and divine phases of salvation. They taught that salvation is of the Lord from beginning to end. But they also taught that God saves men, not by mechanical law, nor irrespective of their response to him, but in full harmony with their nature as voluntary creatures. Listen, by requiring them to obey his will and working in them in such a way as to move their will and elicit their cooperation with him as he fits them for his presence. Thus he is glorified in them in both time and eternity, thereby grace is prevented from being a cloak of lasciviousness." 
The framers of the New Hampshire Declaration of Faith, which, by the way, is what we ascribe to, the New Hampshire Declaration of Faith, were wise and happy indeed in their statement on this matter, which is as follows. We believe that such only as are real believers as endure to the end, that their persevering attachment to Christ is the grand mark that distinguishes them from superficial professors, that a special providence watches over their welfare, and that they are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. Now, West Coast says that perseverance is not required. Do you want to hear what Jesus says about it? John eight thirty one. Then Jesus said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. In John 15, he said, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye, except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit, for without me ye can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch, and is withered, and men gather them, and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. Now, do you think that that means that perseverance is solely our work? And so if we don't persevere, that we'll be lost? Well, absolutely not, because we know that John wrote, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they'd been of us, they would have no doubt continued with us. But they went out that it might be made manifest that they were not all of us. There are many scriptures in the Bible that teach perseverance. Let me give you just two more, and these are representative of others. In Colossians 1, verses 21 through 23, And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight, if ye continue in the faith grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which ye have heard and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. Then also So in Hebrews chapter 12, he says, Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Now those are scriptures about perseverance. And folks, it is totally dishonest to say that we believe that those scriptures are any indication at all that we believe that we will fall away from salvation if we don't maintain good works by our own ability. We don't believe that. When Paul says in Hebrews 12 verse 15, looking diligently lest any man fail of the grace of God, we ought not to forget that John also wrote, for whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Now, I suppose that if you think that salvation is the product of man's will, then it'd be very easy to see how that man's will would fail and a person could lose their salvation. But folks, I believe that God's, uh, God is working upon the will of man to make his will to conform to God's will. And that's exactly what the Bible says in Philippians 2.13. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So no matter what the college professor says, the Bible most definitely teaches that perseverance is required. And it's dishonest to say that we believe that our salvation is never assured because we believe that our perseverance comes from the fact of our own works or anything that we do. That is not our position and never has been, and neither is those who believe the doctrines of grace. Now, he's right on the next point, though. This is our final point tonight. We are preserved by the Spirit. 
Absolutely, folks, we are preserved. The Bible teaches that we could never lose our salvation. God's guaranteed it in so many ways that if you remember, it's been about four years ago now, I preached seven messages on this particular subject. And I'm still preaching about it tonight. So don't say that we don't believe it. Now, the West Coast fellow may say we don't believe in preservation, but he's wrong. We absolutely do. 1 Peter 1.5 says, Who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In John chapter 10, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. You know the verse in 2 Timothy 1 verse 12, where Paul says, For the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I am persuaded, for I, for I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. You know Jude chapter, uh, verse number 24 and 25, where Jude says, Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling, and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to the only wise God and our Savior, be glory and majesty and dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. And I know that you know Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39, where Paul said, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. On and on and on we could go with Scripture. Don't tell me I don't believe in preservation. We're kept by the power of God. And right here in the book of Ephesians, he tells us that the promise of this is the seal of the Holy Spirit. And that tells us that our soul is safe and it's secure. Now, the professor at West Coast says that he also believes in preservation. But as I told you just a moment ago, he's taken all of the teeth out of the doctrine and out of the truth by denying that God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit covenanted together from all eternity to make sure that this was so. Which do you believe about it? Do you grieve the Holy Spirit by denying the wonderful, absolute, soul-securing plan of redemption before the foundation of the world? Are you a part of God's plan, or are you, are you a part of God's experiment? I thank the Lord for this, folks. I'm one of God's sheep, and I'm not one of his guinea pigs. Thank the Lord. Signed, sealed, delivered, I'm yours. Thank the Lord for the Holy Spirit that God has given us. Let's pray. Well, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the Holy Spirit who's come to live in our hearts and has given us the guarantee of our eternal salvation. And, Lord, we're thankful that before the foundation of the world, you planned it. You knew who we were. You wrote our names down. You knew exactly that we would believe, and you brought us to that belief. And we thank you, Lord, that we have absolute assurance. We have concrete assurance in our faith and our salvation because you've done it in time past before the world was ever created. Thank you, Lord, for that. Bless our people tonight. Help us to stand on the truth, not to waver, but to stand right here on the Bible and what our historic Baptist forefathers have always believed and taught. And may we not surrender our doctrine to the modernists of this day who have perverted it into something that you never intended for it to be. Thank the Lord for Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.